Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast, where we talk about the stories within the panels. This is Albert Lamb. And I'm Drew Tan. And today we continue our countdown of the top 25 Marvels of all time. Today we are on number three. Please introduce it to us, Drew. I was going to call you Daredevil. (laughs) In case you don't know by now, (laughs) the number three book on our list is Daredevil by Frank Miller. So we're going to take, we're kind of going to cheat and take the entirety of his work on Daredevil. So let me give you guys a quick run through. Frank Miller's initial run on Daredevil includes Daredevil numbers 158 to 161 and 163 to 191. When he first started his run, he was merely the penciler. But in issue number 165, he was co-plotter with the writer Roger McKenzie for a few issues. But the, the big issue is number 168 when he takes over as writer and penciler. Klaus Janssen was the inker, finisher, embellisher, and eventually the colorist. Frank Miller's first issue as penciler has a cover date of May 1979. And number issue 168, which was his first issue as writer and penciler, has a cover date of January 1980. The final issue of the run is number 191. That has a cover date of February 83. And then a few years after that, he would come back to the book. 1986, he would return to Daredevil for what is recognized as one of the most seminal Marvel stories of all time, which is Daredevil Born Again. Mm -hmm. And that story was serialized in Daredevil numbers 227 to 233 with David Mazzuccelli as the artist. He also wrote a year one type a miniseries called Daredevil, Man Without Fear in 1993 with line art by John Romita Jr. and Al Williamson. And on top of that, there were a couple of other uh, random issues and uh, graphic novels. Uh, the, probably, you know, I'm running through all this and it, it sounds like it's uh, kind of complicated and a lot to track down, but the easiest way to own it all is just to buy the Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus and the Daredevil by Frank Miller Companion Omnibus. Like, those are the two... It's all yeah. there in one place where you can just read it without having to track anything down. Yeah, exactly. Just get the omnibuses. That's <clears throat> the, the best way to, to obtain it. There's also an Electra by Frank Miller omnibus, and that's definitely good stuff as well. But today we are here specifically to talk about his work on Daredevil. Yeah, and I just want to go over just very briefly and very quickly our criteria, which is we're going to look at uh, how we determine how it came to be the number three on our list of uh, top Marvels of all time is via its craft, its originality, its impact, and its ability to withstand the test of time. Um, Because this story, because we cheated a little and decided to go with the entire run of uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil, it's it's not really the type of thing where we can just give you a brief synopsis of the story because it's just, it happened over years and years and there were gaps in between but uh i think it's fair to say that this uh you mentioned earlier that this was one of the seminal stories in daredevil's history Mm -hmm. and it's something that i think if you take the individual story elements you'll see it see it occur time and time again in all of the various iterations of daredevil in movies and in television um yeah like it's the stuff that i think it's fair to say is 
the most recognizable elements of his history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have anything to add in terms of like a brief description of what constitutes uh, the story or like if you were to descri- describe it to someone who's never read a Daredevil comic, do you have a description for So let's 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 start from the beginning. Let's let's yeah. talk about who and what Daredevil was before Frank Miller got his hands on him. Hmm. So Daredevil was created back in the early 60s, mid-60s by uh, Stan Lee and Bill Everett. Uh, he was always, I guess he always kind of seems like... He was always described as a poor man Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah, just this urban level street vigilante. Uh, his, his power set was interesting because he didn't have any sort of superhuman strength or, or durability or agility or anything like what Spider-Man had. But instead, he was... A blind man who had the power to uh he he had a r- expanded senses like he lost his sight in a radioactive accident yeah <laughs> you know he was hit by a radioactive athlete <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was bitten by a radioactive track star <laughs> no what happened was he jumped into the street to push an old man out of the way of a speeding truck when and he was, he was a kid. when he was a kid yep. and he was hit by a canister filled with radioactive chemicals or an isotope yeah. and it left him blind but it heightened all his other senses so for all intents and purposes as far as i can tell uh daredevil is the first disabled superhero yeah uh, i guess so yeah. i mean maybe there is maybe he's the most know about. Um, he's the most notable one yeah, yeah i guess yeah or the first most notable yeah one. yeah that's fair. He's, he's the the earliest one that I can think of. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. His his disability is built into his power set. Yeah, so yeah. he's blind, but he has uh, enhanced hearing, enhanced taste, enhanced sense of touch. Uh, his other enhanced senses, enhanced smell. Yeah. Yeah. So all of his other senses are mightily enhanced to mm. superhuman levels, and on top of that, he also developed a radar sense, like um, echolocation. Kind of like echolocation, where. He, He's able to sense outlines and things and, uh, you know, so he, he can essentially navigate the world even better than somebody who does have sight. Yeah. Yeah. Under most normal circumstances. Yeah. He can't see things like color. Yeah. He or... won't be able to see color. He can't read an, he can't read a magazine yeah. without touching it. He can't see the, the details of someone's like face or yeah. their features. Um, yeah. but he has a strong awareness of his surroundings nonetheless. Mm hmm. And, and uh, he also trained to be a ninja. Yeah. So he knows how to fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a, yeah. That's... In, his, in his civilian identity, he is Matt Murdock, a lawyer. Yeah. So that that's kind of his whole thing. So it, the, the story is, traditionally plays on, you know, the idea that a lawyer, a guy who's supposed to help uphold the laws and regulations of society, <clears throat> he's out there at night putting on a mask, breaking the law to be a vigilante and taking, kind of taking justice into his own hands. Mm, you know, mm, so that, mm. that's, that's, I guess that sort of tension was always built into the character. Um, but to be honest, it doesn't really feel like any of the Daredevil stories that came out before Frank Miller started had too much uh, lasting impact. Yeah, they were just kind of adventure stories, which is fine. I mean, a lot of those earlier... Um, comics you know they were what they were yeah. um 
and this isn't even exclusive to Daredevil, even older Batman, older, like the original Batmans and original Superman stories, you know, they, they're digestible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's actually an interesting point you bring out because a lot of times when a new superhero is created, especially these older characters, right, from the Golden Age and the Silver Age, a lot of times they're not um, really as fully formed when they emerge. Like when you look at exactly the first appearance of Batman in Detective Comics number twenty-seven or or whatever, you know, like that incarnation of Batman is not the Batman that we recognize today. Exactly, it's exactly. a very different um, core concept. Yeah, I, there there's a lot of evolution in comics, you know, and comics has a long lifespan. And when they first came out, it I don't know if it's fair to say, I guess you could say it was a simpler time and that was what they wanted out of their entertainment, but um, these characters have existed for such a long time and they've evolved to meet the sensibilities of uh, consumers of entertainment for whatever the current age is, so... Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, uh, they have long histories, and people add to those histories, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worst. And what we have, uh, like you said, what we have today is very different from the the proto-Daredevil that Stanley originally came up with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even say it was... It's very different now. Um, I, I think my, that my comparison was more towards uh, Batman mm. earlier in, like, the Golden Age... Batman versus today's Batman, with uh, with Daredevil, I would probably say that uh, like a lot of the the basic elements are there, like his like Foggy Nelson, his his best friend and uh, partner in his law firm, and mm. uh, the fact that he's uh, you know his power set um, was pretty well defined, and and the fact that he's also this superhero that doesn't have super strength or or like superpowers as in the traditional sense. But he's always getting into fights with people that are more powerful than him, mm. and he's kind of the scrappy underdog type of character who who uh, yeah gets matched up against uh, powerhouses at times and has to figure out a way to to defeat them using his wits. Mm. Um, like I remember one of the earliest uh, famous Daredevil stories um, from the sixties was a was a story where he fought Namor the Submariner, <laughs> right? Like that. That's like, a pretty uneven matchup. <laughs> yeah, on, on paper, Namor should tear him apart. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's like things, it's things like that where, uh, you know, Daredevil kind of lived in, in a world, you know, clearly the Marvel Universe, he's operating yeah. with all these super-powered characters uh, and interacting in their world for the most part. Um, and like, like I said earlier, he kind of came off as a second-tier version of Spider-Man. Yeah. Like he was, he was an old, he was older than Spider Man because you know he was a grown man when he he was Daredevil, whereas Spider Man started out as a, as a teenager, high schooler. Yeah. Um, I but, do. Oh, yeah. go oh, ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I will say that, and I don't know how true this is, but I remember reading or hearing from an interview somewhere uh, in one of the later runs of Daredevil. It was during the era of Brian Michael Bendis. And um, what Brian Michael Bendis w had done was he made Daredevil, or he brought Daredevil back to his pulp roots. And I remember, 
I want to say someone asked Stan Lee about it, and he essentially said that he had always intended Daredevil to be a pulp character. Oh, okay. Uh, and again, this is anecdotal, so I'm not even 100% sure if it's true. <laughs> but um, yeah, essentially the question was, what what makes Daredevil different from Spider-Man? Like, is, it's not really... Yeah, like, for, for all the people that would say that Daredevil is just a poor man Spider-Man, you know, just kind of an action hero who makes quips or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, for all the people that think that, what exactly made Daredevil different? And from what I remember of that interview, Stanley did say that he was intended to be a pulp character, so there was more elements of crime to it, whereas... I think it's you could say that Spider-Man has some of that, but there's more of a soap science opera. hero, yeah, sci- soap opera science hero element to Spider-Man. Yeah, so, totally. You know, again, I'm not 100 percent sure if I, that it's purely anecdotal. So, but I, I personally could see that elements of the truth to that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way or not. Well, I, I feel the same way about it now with the power of hindsight uh, fueling our uh, examination of That's Daredevil. True. That's true. Um, if, if, in recent years, Daredevil becoming what he has become. Yeah. I, I see that. Yeah. Heck, just based on the comics that we're about to talk about today, <clears throat> that's what we see. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about how, or just briefly mention how when... Frank Miller came on board at with Daredevil. Daredevil was kind of a floundering title. Mm. So this is part of the, the history of comics here. But Daredevil, although he had you know been around for so long, um, for what almost almost twenty years at this point when Frank Miller comes on board, the comic book series itself wasn't one of Marvel's top selling comics. Mm. And actually, it's kind of a famous example of uh, Marvel basically being ready to give up on a series so they decided to let this uh, young guy that they didn't really know too much of his work they let him you know take over the comic yeah 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 um so i think there's there's definitely something fascinating about that just the fact that yeah marvel didn't care about daredevil because maybe they even saw people who worked there saw it as a second rate spider-man and they they didn't know what to do with it and they were like oh we don't care who takes over because it's probably going to get canceled at, at some point anyway. I do feel like time and time again, that is something that happens to Daredevil a lot. He's <laughs> There are, have been multiple instances in Daredevil's publication history where that happens time and time again. And he always comes back in a big, bad way uh, whenever they really just let it, again, like you said, when it seems like whenever they seem to care the less is when they let the creative people do whatever they want the most, and yeah. it's in those instances that Daredevil flourishes. Yeah, because um, yeah, you have the Frank Miller uh, example, but Kevin Smith is another example. Like, say what you will about how much you like or don't like his run, um, but. That that was another instance where Daredevil was kind of was on the rocks, yeah, and yeah. they were ready to just forget about it, and they gave it to Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada, and Joe Quesada, and he came back in a huge way after that, yeah. and following that, 
I, I don't think he was hurting or anything, but it was maybe a couple of years later after that, you followed up with Brian Michael Bendis, mm-hmm. and you, you just have a string of just great writers on him after that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Daredevil's definitely the character, I would say, pound for pound, like just the most number of good runs by mm. quality creative teams Absolutely. his history. I mean, Absolutely. He, like starting from the very beginning with Stan Lee um, and Bill Everett. I mean, Bill Everett's one of those golden age guys that's pretty famous too. Um, but Wally Wood drew a few issues of Daredevil. Uh, you had a, a run drawn by Gene Colan. Um, and then obviously, as time progresses, you get Frank Miller, you get David Mazzuccelli, uh You know, people have a lot of affection for Anosenti and John Romita Jr. Mm. And then in the 90s, you had D.G. Chichester, Scott yeah. McDaniel. <clears throat> that was pretty enjoyable. Um, I, you know, it's a lot of stuff where, where even if that run in the 90s wasn't, like, perfect, like, there was... It still holds up better and is more fascinating to read than a lot of other 90s stuff. Yeah. So I, I would actually upload that as a hidden gem of the 90s. Um, and then there are other writers, like Joe Kelly had a short run on, on Daredevil. Uh, J.M. DiMatteis had a short run. I actually haven't read those um, too much other than a couple random issues here and yeah, there. Yeah. But, you know, th- those came out at, the, at a time when the comics industry as a whole was starting to flounder. Flounder, yeah. The book wasn't doing too well in terms of sales. And then... You had the relaunch with Kevin Smith and Joe Casada, yeah, and then you had David Mack come on board as a writer and an artist. And Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev, Ed Brubaker, Ed Brubaker. Michael Lark, yeah, uh, Andy Diggle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, how, how he might not be quite on the same level, but if we're going over, yeah. you know, the creative people, yeah. Mark Wade and Mark, uh, Samney, yeah, that's, yeah, that was a great run. Uh, and now you have Chip Zdarsky, yeah. and Marco Cicchetto, yeah. It's a great run. Yeah. Uh, won't really say anything about Charles Soul. <laughs> uh, to all you Charles Soul fans out there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But today we are here not to bury Charles Soul, but to extol Frank Miller. Yes, we will celebrate him. So let's go into the craft of the book. Mm-hmm. Do you? Have anything to say about? Well, actually, do you want to like briefly summarize the story, just so listeners can have a sense of context of what we'll be discussing? Yeah, that's it's what I was trying to ask you earlier because since we're describing an entire run with gaps and breaks in between, it's it's a little harder to pin down uh, without going into specific arcs, but. Um, I can try. Yeah. I can try. So, yeah. so it, it's just huge. It's it's long and it's expansive, is what it is. I'll I'll start with the issues that Miller came on board as penciler first before he began writing it. So, the the early issues of his run as an artist were written by a few different writers. I think uh, Roger McKenzie was the main one, but David I think David Michelinie might have written one. Um, and honestly, those are just your kind of typical paint by numbers superhero stories. Like those are the stories where I would, when I reread those, um, I looked at those and I was like, yeah, I can see why people considered Daredevil a second rate Spider-Man. Because yeah. He's, he's, they're just typical kind of superhero stories of the era where he's fighting, uh, guys like death stalker. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. Gladiator. Yeah. They're more one off stories. There was even a story where he fought Dr. Octopus. Yeah. 
actually, I I think I can kind of sum up uh, what the larger arc of his story is. Mm-hmm. And I think the most defining thing that you can... One of the most defining things that you can take out of this Daredevil run was... And feel free to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but prior to Frank Miller's run on Daredevil, Kingpin was a Spider-Man villain, uh, primarily. Uh, don't look at my hands. I so, can't stop looking at your hands because the gestures you were making, <laughs> you were making, reminded me of Donald Trump. Oh, you're doing that thing he does. Oh, the the perfect the perfect sign with the three. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so um, <laughs> I think a a huge defining element of Frank Miller's run. On, here's this. I'm gonna do Bill Clinton instead. Okay. okay. <laughs> a huge defining element of uh, uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil run was that all of a sudden it it became this really harsh crime comic where Daredevil was taking on was taking on the kingpin. So it was kind of so crime now had a face in his story. So it was this ongoing battle between Daredevil and his arch nemesis of the story, which was the Kingpin. And I I think that's essentially a good way to describe his run. It's the back and forth between him and the ultimate face of crime in New York City, of the underworld mob, which was the Kingpin of crime himself, Wilson Fisk. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's an accurate assessment. Um, And, yeah, I was going to say... Like that—that's the uh, the big shift in tone um, from the time when Frank Miller starts as a penciler and the time he begins as the writer of the book. Because his time as an artist, you know, like those issues are fine to look at. They don't necessarily hold up as well um, in terms of the writing and the story. And you know, they're they're just like like I said, typical superhero punch ups where he meets somebody, yeah, have a dust up and. Uh, Who's he gonna fight this week? He's on. Like, there's even a comic. One of the issues he fights the Hulk. Yeah. You know, like stuff like that. Um, but there are a few plot points introduced in those early issues that do carry on to his run as a as a writer. Because uh, one of the things that that's really big is that those early issues um, where he's only the artist, they do establish that Daredevil and Bullseye have. A big enmity against each other mm. bullseye obviously being one of his greatest enemies uh, and you know there's some other supporting characters that that are important that are introduced as well like there's matt murdoch's girlfriend heather uh, the black widow is a supporting cast member in those early issues but then towards the end of them she ends up uh exiting the book yeah but she, she makes a return later on when miller like later on in miller's run uh, and then there's a lot of character development that carries on to Miller's run as well, like uh, Miller's run as writer. For example, uh, a lot of details about Foggy's personal life. Um, he gets married and things like that. Mm. There's the, the whole subplot with the gladiator trying to reform. Uh, you know, one of the greatest villains, or I don't even know if he's one of Daredevil's greatest villains, but he's one of the more notable Daredevil villains, and he ends up becoming uh, kind of a recurring character. And I think one well, of, I don't know if he's one of the greatest, but yeah, he's definitely he's a recurring character. Yeah. yeah, and then uh, probably the most notable thing is Ben Urich, a reporter for the Daily Bugle, which is where Spider-Man works. Yeah, he deduces that Matt Murdock is Daredevil, 
in those issues bef uh, before Miller becomes writer. Uh, but Ben Urick decides not to go public with that story. So, like, those are all things that are kind of percolating in the background. And then once we get to his main run as writer and artist, then, yeah, all that stuff with the Kangpin starts to build up and build up and yeah. build up. And you get more <clears throat> bullseye. And, and then Frank Miller, um, in his very first issue as writer, he introduces the character Electra. Yeah. Who was uh, his former lover in college uh, who somehow became a ninja and now she's an, she's an assassin. <laughs> well, when you describe it like that. <laughs> it's very reductive, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's there was definitely more nuance to her backstory as you were reading it, but, you know, if you're trying to describe it in brief, the, they were lovers, she had a falling out, and the next time he saw her, she was a ninja. A ninja assassin. Ninja assassin. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, the essentially the the bulk of his his first run was him dealing with the kingpin. Yeah, uh, the kingpin rises back into power, and uh, he'd typically been a Spider-Man villain. Yeah, probably a, a lower tier Spider-Man villain at that. A jobber. A jobber. <laughs> yeah. And now he's like you said, the face of crime in New York City. Yeah. And Daredevil is the only one who's hip to his plans and can stop him. And then, in addition to that, there's a whole thing with Daredevil uh, with Bullseye and Elektra and the assassin or the ninja cast that trained uh, Elektra they're called the Hand yeah so yeah it's a <clears throat> pretty long extensive story um, we'll get into more of the specific details as we discuss the comic as a whole yeah and then of course uh, the second part of his run which is Born Again we'll Maybe we'll, we'll just talk about that uh, after we talk about the first part of his run. Would that yeah. be simpler? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm done with that. Okay. Cool. So, <clears throat> what do you think about the craft of this run? I, yeah, so, it's hard not to discuss it without looking at everything that came prior to it. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, Frank Miller did introduce, as far as I can tell, uh, a lot of grittier elements into it. I know me and you tend to, <laughs> we tend to poo-poo it a lot when we find instances in comics where people go that length to make something grittier and darker, <laughs> and, um, there are, are a lot of instances where it's done badly, Yeah, but... I think the thing that we need to recognize is a lot of the people that did that, I think it's fair to say that they were inspired by Frank Miller, who did it, maybe not first, but who who did dark and gritty in a way that established the tone for years yeah. following that. Massive influence. For yeah. Sure. You know, he took Daredevil and he played up the more pulp and crime elements and... Uh, you could tell just in his uh, storytelling that it it wasn't a punch punch him up as you were describing anymore. It wasn't just Daredevil fighting the villain of the week or whatever. Mm -hmm. There he introduced a lot of story elements into the background that was where Daredevil's conflicts were more about his regular life coming into conflict with his performance as Daredevil. So there was a lot of... I want to say it was almost cinematic in how that was presented mm -hmm. on paper. Mm -hmm. You know, it was his his pain and his anguish with dealing with, 
you know, things in his personal life while he was trying to be a hero for the city. Mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. How does that sound? I think that's good, man. I, I definitely agree with that. The The tone of the writing is far more noirish than exactly. the things I, that we would expect from that era. Exactly. I, I, I feel like that's the the kind of the key word to put in there was it it took a lot of elements of noir and put it into a comic yeah yeah definitely there's a an element of uh i guess the writers probably the 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 crime or the pulp writers that frank miller enjoyed I, i don't really know the names of them all but you know, it just makes me think of somebody like Mickey Spillane, you know, somebody who who wrote like these kind of hard-boiled, hard-edged, uh, pulpy crime fiction novels um, back in the days, you know, and that's the kind of thing that Frank Miller channeled in his writing, whether it was the, the dialogue or the narration, um, really just the tone, overall tone and yeah. even the artwork. Uh, when I think of of uh, pulp and... and noir and crime comics one of the early ones that comes to mind is will eisner's the spirit Mm, mm, and when you look at frank miller's artwork in daredevil you can see that it's will eisner inspired artwork you can see it in his figures the way that he draws them um, and renders the, the the musculature and and all that um you can see it in his title pages on a lot of the issues that he he writes and draws because when you think about uh, Will Eisner and his comic strip The Spirit, a lot of times he integrated the title into the artwork in some sort yeah, of creative yeah, yeah. way. And there are a lot of times when Frank Miller plays with that kind of element as well, like the the splash page that opens the comic will have <clears throat> have the title of will have Daredevil's name or the title of the story yeah. in some interesting font that's not just font. It's not just lettering, but it yeah. looks like it's actually part of the artwork. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> another example of his Will Eisner influence is his staging. So, like when he when he draws um, a scene, right? When Frank Miller draws a scene, he he doesn't have to draw it in full detail. Like he doesn't draw like if it's something in a in a club, a nightclub or something. He doesn't have to draw like every single patron and all the lights and the and yeah. people like that, but <clears throat> he just needs a few background elements to set the scene. Like yeah. he can draw like a couple tables, and then you'll just for some reason you just look at it and you know where you are. You know, like he he's able. To, there's like a minimalist, really elegant element to the artwork, um, and and you see that Will Eisner influence, which is pretty fascinating too, because <clears throat> Frank Miller has a lot of different influences like when you look at some of the other comics he's done like Ronin which he did a few years after his run on Daredevil you see a really big uh European art style influence like a Mobius kind of influence on his work there Mm -hmm. um and then when you also look at something like Sin City you know the black and white art uh, that is truly noir right there yeah yeah it's him letting loose with his noir yeah even more so than Daredevil and even even in in stuff like Sin City, you see a, a manga influence, where oh. like there there's a sense of uh, what do you call it, a decompression. You know, like there's panels, there's pages that only have like three panels. Yeah. Where he, he even has stories where like each page is a single panel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know the the pacing, just like it's totally different. So, 
obviously Frank Miller is just a guy that has a lot of experience with all sorts of comic books from all over the world and he can take those influences, crystallize them and apply them, apply them and, yeah. and create something that you can still see his influences, but you can still see that he's using his own ideas as well. Yeah. Like one of the other things of his, one of the other elements of his art that I thought was really cool was uh, the expressionistic element of it. So it's like this heightening or bending of reality to create a certain effect. So it, it's not always, he doesn't always draw in the most realistic way. Like I think his figures and people are realistic, but if yeah. you look at, if you look really closely at his backgrounds and, and everything else in the scene, not those things aren't always uh, the most realistic. He actually manipulates or distorts elements of reality so that in the drawing, the external reality represents the internal reality of the characters. So like an example would be when, when he has Daredevil swinging around uh, through New York City, um, there could be a skyscraper that's, you know, 300 stories tall. <laughs> and, and that's not realistic, you know, like there aren't, really buildings that big but although it, i do want to see a 300 story tall <laughs> stilt man that yeah. would be <laughs> that would be hilarious it's like oh my goodness <laughs> how are you so tall <laughs> how do i fight this <laughs> but but he, he does stuff like that so it conveys this feeling of height and power yeah. you know like yeah, yeah. daredevil's just a small figure in this city full full of towering gargantuan buildings yeah. and and we know that real new york is not like that, but he communicates that feeling effectively yeah, just yeah. through perception, right? Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's it's an emotive quality that he draws out from from the artwork. Another good example, and I, I read this one in an interview actually, so it's it's not like I, I picked it out myself, but um, in issue one hundred eighty one, uh, this the issue where Bullseye kills Electra. Mm. There's a scene when Bullseye escapes from prison, and he's trying to like catch up on what's going on in the world and he wants to kill Electra and become you know the, the premier assassin uh, man yeah, assassin yeah. Uh, so he can take down Daredevil and prove himself to the kingpin uh, there's a scene in that where Bullseye gets out of prison and you know he's just basically beating up these lower tier uh, gangsters and he's just relaxing trying to think about his next plan and what he has is a, a gigantic bottle of whiskey and he's drinking this, he, he, he's already drunk all the whiskey, and he's just like smoking while sitting on the floor, but the, the whiskey bottle is drawn like massive, it, it's like four times bigger than the ashtray, yeah. you know, it's, it's like this massively drawn, unrealistic whiskey bottle, but they, but I read in the interview, Miller and Jansen said they intentionally drew it like that to show that Bullseye this dude is out of control, you know, yeah. like th this dude has no limits. He, he, he'll just like find the biggest freaking bottle of alcohol. And he'll just drink it. Drink it all, you know? <laughs> <laughs> He's just out of control. Yeah. Uh, and, and he, you, you see stuff like that when you're, when you're actually reading the comic, maybe you don't necessarily, uh, analyze or process it like that, but, uh, you feel it. You feel it. Yeah, exactly. There, yeah. There's that emotional part of you that, you know, you kind of see, you notice that, oh, that's not too realistic, but it fits the mood. It fits yeah. the tone of the story. Like, yeah. It's, it's, Bullseye is a bad dude. Yeah. It's very subtle. It's subliminal. Yeah. Subliminal. Subliminal. <laughs> subliminal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, and, and another example, and this is one that I, I found on my own, but in the same issue, uh, after Elektra dies, she's, her body is in uh, the hospital mortuary or, or whatever you call that area. And, you know, a doctor is with uh, Foggy Nelson and Matt Murdock basically going over her wounds and, and, and telling them, you know, these are her wounds and this is how she died. But the way that Miller and Jansen draw that scene, like, they're... The room that they're in is, is it's crazy big. It's like cavernous almost. Yeah. And, and you know that in New York City, there's probably no hospital. There's not going to be a room like that. That big. big you know? <laughs> right. But it's it's not realistic. But it just expresses. It still how conveys. Small yeah. They feel in that moment. You yeah. know, it, like Matt Murdock and Foggy, they're at a low point. You yeah. Know? And and like they're just surrounded by darkness. In yeah. This, in this massive room, so there's there's these cool artistic tricks like that that Miller and Jansen used to really communicate their story. Yeah, and that's the thing that makes it different from someone who just draws it bad or just has no sense of, like, perception. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, or physicality. Like, it's the deliberateness of it all, right? Yeah. It's the fact that they took the extra time and effort and thought yeah. to put something in there because they wanted to achieve an effect. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. artistic, intelligent intention design behind it. Exactly. And another thing about uh, the craft I was going to say is he, they trust their artwork to tell the story. If, if you notice, uh, not only in the character's body language, which communicates a lot of their emotions uh, accurately, but even the pacing of his panels um, really sells the, the pathos of, of what's going on. Um, let me... Check out an example right here, but there, there's a, a scene in one of the issues where, uh, one of the earlier issues that he wrote and drew, where Daredevil and Bullseye are fighting in Subway, and basically it's a really rough and tumble uh, beat em up, and they're just fighting dirty. Daredevil manages to knock out uh, Bullseye by smashing his head against the rail. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, it's, it's like it's vicious stuff, and then. Um, what ends up happening is they're they're just on these subway tracks and Daredevil's like trying to catch his breath after this brutal fight. Bullseye is knocked unconscious lying on the rail and then uh, Daredevil, this is all his uh, thought balloons, his internal narration, but he's, he's he says stuff like, uh, I can feel that the tracks are vibrating so there's a, a subway, uh, another train coming. Yeah. Um, you know, and he's like, he's so weakened by the ordeal that he can't tell how, how close the train is. And he's like, I just got to get out of here before, you know, I get hit. But Bullseye, Bullseye's still on the tracks. He'll be killed. There's nothing I can do. Too weak. I'm too weak to lift him. Too weak. You deserve to die, Bullseye. <laughs> you just kill again. I hate you. <laughs> and then... He pauses for a couple panels, like a few wordless panels, right? And he just like looks to the side, then looks back at the tracks. And you can tell from the, the, the lighting that a train is coming. And without any more words, he just goes it's over. It's a sequence of panels. Double. I mean, yeah. he picks up Bullseye. Yeah. Yeah, it's a sequence of panels. And you can see the there's a glare in the background. And you just see these two figures. And you see uh, their silhouettes as Daredevil comes over to bullseye and 
the glare just gets bigger and bigger until it just occupies the entirety of the that last panel. Yeah. And it's so well um, communicated, yeah. you know? And, and the thing I want to highlight, and I'll, I'll try to take a picture of this and put it on our Instagram later on, but uh, this this middle tier of panels, right? Like, this, the part where Daredevil's thinking about... Uh, about what's going to happen to Bullseye and how Daredevil's too tired and too weak to, to pick him up and how Bullseye deserves to die because he's just going to kill again. Not on top of that, he just hates him. Yeah, he deserves you know, it. Like, <laughs> this sequence of panels, like, it starts off, like, it's pretty subtle, but each successive panel is slightly more narrow than the previous one. Yeah. And and you, you So just, you feel that sense of just time is yeah, running out <laughs> exactly and, and like that's a powerful tool yeah that you can only do in comics it, yeah and again it's one of those uh tools where when you're reading the comic you're just in, and you're just enjoying it and taking it in you don't really think about it but when you step back and try to look at it critically you can actually break it down and, and scientifically analyze oh this is how they enhanced yeah. that effect you know it's interesting that you mentioned scientifically because i uh, there's a part of me that doubts that they you know did a study to show <laughs> how many squares and uh how many you know how, how big do the, the sizes of the squares need to be in order for someone to feel that impending sense of urgency yeah <laughs> uh, but at the same time they knew instinctively how to communicate that mm -hmm. just by the size of the panels yeah it's it's um it's yeah uh, there there is a science to it i don't i don't doubt that but it's it's impressive that they were able to grasp that yeah uh, maybe for them it concept. was just intuitive yeah i don't maybe, maybe they didn't necessarily sit down and, and like measure things out or try and calculate a yeah. formula or something but but like these guys are just like top tier talent they're artists. that good yeah, they're just that good <laughs> yeah all right, they uh they were a great team, man. Frank they were. Miller and and Klaus Jansen, when they first started together, uh, when Miller took over as as writer, it was a it was a bi monthly comic. Um, you know, it was on the brink of cancellation. They didn't feel the need to publish it every month, but when they came on board, it went from bi monthly to monthly. And as they c continued to collaborate, uh, their their collaboration grew even tighter because uh eventually Miller, you know, he, he was writing and penciling and, and maybe that was taking a lot out of him, especially once it became monthly, but he would end up providing looser pencils for Jansen to ink. And then by about issue uh, 185, he was basically just writing it and providing layouts. Mm. And then Klaus Jansen would pencil ink and color. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like Jansen, man, he, it was a good team. Wanna, yeah. Team you don't want to underestimate uh, the amount his of contribution. Work. Yeah, exactly. His contribution. Cause the coloring when he started becoming the colorist, uh, the coloring turned even moodier when he uh, was ink and colorist. Like when you look at some of the issues that that uh, that when you look at the issues that didn't have Klaus Jensen's colors, they look more garish. Like a lot of the other books uh, of their era, like the late seventies, early eighties, mm. had a lot of. You know, strange coloring choices, especially when you see them reprinted in on today's paper. Yeah, it, it's a lot of like weird purples and yellows and and stuff that's it just out of place. Stands out. Yeah, like yeah. like for example, you'll have an outdoor daytime scene where 
the sky or the buildings are just straight up yellow for no real reason. <laughs> you know, it's like it's straight straight up yellow. Yeah. And I, I don't really get that, man. But Klaus Janssen's colors, he used his colors to set mood, set tone, set texture. Even when he's just using f- flat colors, his, his colors are more about emotion uh, behind the scene. They're not necessarily realistic all the time, but they're more about con- conveying emotion, whether it's like anxiety or, or panic mm. or or calm you know like there's just certain colors that that psychologically when you look at them they affect your reading a certain way and he's able to to use that to communicate the story uh a big example of that is the ben yurik issue if you remember uh the ben yurik issue uh let me let me flip through it real quick um but it's it's the story where ben yurik uh is trying to investigate uh What's he investigating? He's he's investigating uh, the kingpin because the kingpin is is doing. He's basically bankrolling a mayor, a candidate for mayor. Yeah. And so this mayor is crooked, and if he if he ends up winning the election, the kingpin's basically gonna. He's be just gonna have strings. the run of the city. Yeah. yeah so so Ben Yurik's in investigating this stuff, and then kingpin sends uh, Electra to assassinate Ben uh, Ben Yurik or. I guess not even assassinate him, but to scare him. Intimidate because, him. Because yeah. the story starts out with Ben talking to uh, his source. And this guy is telling him about the the trails of corruption. And they're in a movie theater. And the story starts with uh, Electra stabbing that dude through the back of the seat while they're in the movie theater. Yeah. And the the way that it's all colored is... is uh, it's not necessarily realistic but it, it it it's moody you know like it really is there's a lot of uh like there's a lot of greens green shades yeah but th- there's a mood to it and there's a sense of a uh, panic and, and fear that's yeah. just inherent and uh, as the as the issue progresses it's also a really f- well-constructed issue because uh by the end of the issue there's a, a symmetry to it what happens is ben stumbles upon uh, Electra and Daredevil fighting on a rooftop and it's a pretty epic battle earlier in the issue uh, there's been allusions to Ben Yurik smoking too many cigarettes mm. and how they're going to be the death of him uh, Daredevil tells him they're going to be the death of him um, but you know he's addicted to his nicotine exactly he's smoking but he's watching Electra and Daredevil fight on a rooftop and he's on an adjacent rooftop taking pictures for his his uh, story and like right after uh, Electra beats up Daredevil, Ben Yurik starts, starts coughing, coughing. <laughs> because he smoked too many cigarettes to get up, and he had to climb up all those stairs. Yeah, Electra hears him because he coughs, and then this final page when he realizes that Electra has seen him, like the the background. I'll take a picture of this for the Instagram as well. But yeah. the, the background's all just like red, red and black dots, and he's just completely co- colored yellow with shades of black. Yeah, while he's running. And you just see the panic and, and fear, you know, there, there's a sense of like, oh man. Yeah. You know, like. And the scene is just getting, with each panel, you just get closer and closer to yeah. his face. Yeah. You know, just again, just bringing home that sense of urgency. Yeah. <laughs> a powerful sense of urgency. And it, it it's a really, a really good um, sequence, man. I, yeah. I got to take yeah. a picture of that for the Instagram so people can see what we're talking about but uh all all of this to say 
that Miller and Jansen and definitely Mazzuccelli when we get to him, you know, those guys are all masters of the craft, man. Yeah. They, like, they, they're doing things that people today will still study and, and learn from and imitate. Yeah. We, um... I, I don't remember if you mentioned it earlier, I forget, but mm-hmm. there, there was that poll that you mentioned where, you know, people were talking about how uh, they, were, they were voting on which comic is better, uh, Daredevil oh, yeah. by Frank Miller or uh, Hush by Jim Lee and Jeff Loeb. And... It, it was uh, Born Again. Born oh, yeah, again, Born Again. Born Again versus Hush. Right, and I can honestly say that there wasn't anything like that. In There wasn't... It didn't feel like there was anything close to that level of forethought put into <laughs> Hush. Yeah, Hush was a comic for meatheads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to comment on in regards to the craft, or do you want to move on to the originality? Um, there are elements of the story that I thought were extremely well-crafted, besides the artistic elements I, I brought up. But uh, I'll just give one example, but... The, the the issue right after Electra dies. Yeah, uh, I th- I thought that issue was very uh, powerful. It was a potent issue because instead of just moving Daredevil on to the next adventure, yeah, you know he just had to deal with he lost. You know he yeah. lost a battle. Like and not only that, won, the stakes were high. <laughs> yeah, the stakes were. He might have beaten up Bullseye, but Bullseye took something from him. You know, like Bullseye yeah. killed someone he loved. Yeah. And the issue right after that, he's still dealing with it, you know? Like, he's not he's not just uh, moving on to fight the next bad guy, but the whole issue after that is about him thinking she's still alive. Yeah. He thinks... He still hears her heartbeat, from what I remember, right? Or he, he believes... He believes he yeah. hears her heartbeat, exactly. And, and he's just obsessed with trying to prove that she's still alive, and, and like, he's, he's racing through town trying to find clues that, of her... That, that she faked her death or she used some sort of ninja trick. Yeah. Um, but eventually, like, he ends up being so obsessed, he goes to the grave, digs up her body, and f- touches her face just to feel it. And then at that point, he realizes that it is her. And, it's a like, corpse. It, yeah, and, and he's just in anguish. Yeah. And and at the end, Foggy finds him at the, at the cemetery and... They just kind of walk away yeah. broken and defeated. And I thought that was a really powerful epilogue. Even the cover for that issue, from what I remember, is a pretty iconic cover. It's the one where... He's hugging the grave. Yeah, he's hugging the gravestone, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's always an image that I feel they try to recreate for the movies or something. <laughs> but it's it's a very... It's it's an iconic cover. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I wanted to mention in terms of craft that mm-hmm. always sticks out for me is there was this one issue in particular that I remember um, because the story that had taken place in that one was about how Daredevil had lost his powers mm-hmm. and it was him reconnecting with his, I don't have a better word for it, but his sensei essentially yeah. <laughs> to train him to perceive the world in a new way and to access his pre-existing powers so that he can fully utilize yeah. his his heightened senses yeah. to to reconnect with uh the world because he had lost his his radar. His, his radar. Yeah. And from what I remember the way that they communicated his ability to 
in that issue to to reconnect those uh to those powers that was something that i remember always sticking out to me um it, it was a lot of negative space from what i remember mm-hmm. do you remember mm-hmm. what issue that was at? uh i didn't write it down in my notes so yeah not but sure. suffice it to say that that i do remember that being an issue that played around with a lot of the a lot of non-traditional comic storytelling and um especially in western comics yeah especially in western comics and um especially in visual storytelling the other thing about it that and this might be something that i would include for originality more than um for the craft but the thing that i do remember about that specific uh item was that I don't think Daredevil's powers had been explored in quite a, such a way up up to that point. Yeah. Like, I think they just went... He has a radar sense, and as for as far as you could tell, that was just kind of where they left it. Yeah. But this really... That particular issue really explored that element of his power and gave it depth. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I do think that's... A pretty well frank miller contributed a lot to uh daredevil's mythos but that that particular element was it yeah it's not it's not quite as big as something like electra or you know his history with bullseye or whatever but i do think that's that's something that i do appreciate was adding that little element of just how his powers work. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Mm. Anyways. Did you want to move on to the originality of this, of Daredevil? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the originality of this work. So what are some of the things that stood out to you? So the funny thing is, I want to say that in some ways it wasn't original, but in other ways it was. Uh-huh. Because at the end of the day it's he's still frank miller still tells a story where daredevil was fighting villains but at but like you mentioned when you were discussing the craft uh the crime noir elements of it and the storytelling elements of it are really the things that make it original you know it it's still daredevil punching out bullseye or the kingpin but it's how you tell it it's how they told it that made it original. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's such a contribution to the point where they've mined this story time and time again. Um, it, it almost feels like Daredevil and Bullseye or Daredevil and the Kingpin are going to be trapped in this endless time loop where they're just going to fight each other yeah. for... All time, right? Yeah. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, prior to this comic, Kingpin was a primarily a Spider-Man villain, mm-hmm. just kind of a jobber, uh, big boss type that Spider-Man fought. But after Frank Miller's run, it's hard to say that most people don't recognize Kingpin as a Daredevil villain. Yeah. 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 Do you have any thoughts in terms of uh, the originality of the comic? Uh, 
Oh, I mean, definitely in in regards to like the what he contributed to different characters. That had a that that was like reinventing, uh, you know, a second-rate Spider-Man jobber villain into becoming Daredevil's like one of his top two uh, big big bads. That's something that stands out for sure. Mm. Uh, I mean, even even someone like uh, Bullseye who had already been established as a Daredevil villain, he Frank Miller elevated him and he gave him character. He gave him character prior to that. I remember I was in class once, and um, I was I was talking with a teacher of mine about comics, and I mentioned Daredevil. Was this in high school? Or this college? was in high school. This was in high school, okay. and I mentioned okay. Daredevil and like you know my affection for. So up to this point, I I hadn't even read the comics, but I knew the the main plot points of the story because it was just such a massive part of daredevil's history at this point and yeah the whole death of Electra. yeah the death of Electra saga (laughs) (laughs) but i remember mentioning it to um my one of my english teachers in high school and i don't i don't i I actually I, i think he had read it but i remember talking about how one of the greatest uh rivalries in comic was in comics was daredevil and bullseye and he kind of scoffed and he just went yeah but that's only because they gave him personality prior to that and um he and this always stuck out to me he went prior to that uh, you know he was just kind of a nobody and he even didn't get the name right he called him the human target (laughs) (laughs) the human target is a totally different character yeah 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 but um yeah like i think that's a testament to how they created this villain back in the day and bullseye has a pretty cool design it's very simple it's very um sleek Mm -hmm. but it's memorable it's super memorable and but it wasn't until frank miller that he gave him character and it's like you mentioned when you were discussing the craft he totally made this guy out of control and just a real villain, you know, mm-hmm. just, mm-hmm. just an insane badass. Yeah. That's, that's all. Yeah. yeah. So it takes, it takes a level of creativity to, to elevate bullseye to that degree. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And obviously you got to also give them a lot of credit for creating Electra. Yeah. I mean, Electra is one of the, uh, more notable creations of the time period for Marvel Comics. Actually, I was reading a little bit about her history, and I discovered that uh, she was originally... Her first appearance was supposed to just be a a one-time thing, but she ended up being so popular that Frank Miller kept on bringing her back and and used her to be uh, an integral part of his run. Yeah. So, um... No, I remember that, and the other thing that I remember was she was meant to die. Yeah. Like, permanent yeah. death. You yeah. know, as they do in comics all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he his intention was to, to kill her, and she wasn't going to come back. Yeah. Um, that was... You know, that was, I don't think that was really too common in that time frame, where it wasn't too common to see somebody create a fan-favorite popular character just to kill the character. Yeah. You know, I, I can't really think of too many um other examples of that 
maybe uh, like the closest thing I could think of would be you know, Jean killing Grey. Jean Grey, but she wasn't created by Claremont and Byrne. She was mm-hmm. an existing character, and they just had that story they wanted to tell. Uh, with Electra, though, that, that was something where it's like he he created her. With the to kill her. with the sole intention of killing her, yeah. she was a she was a story device. Yeah. <laughs> um. Correct me if I'm wrong, and like I'm gonna defer to you on this one. But mm-hmm. did he also did Miller also create the the hand? Uh, I believe he did. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. I'm yeah. pretty sure he, he he added all those elements to Daredevil's backstory with uh, yeah. the sensei stick. Yeah, the all the ninja stuff. Yeah, that was. Pretty much in Frank Miller's wheelhouse. Cause yeah. I think he was really into, uh, you know, Japanese pop culture and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that right there is another example of his contribution his, the, to the originality of Daredevil moving forward. Yeah. Right? He, um, we mentioned this earlier with Batman, how the Batman that existed, like, originally was different from the Batman that we've come to know. And I do think that a lot, large chunks of Daredevil's history were flushed out under the Miller run. Yeah. So in that sense, again, like I, I do think that's a testament to the originality of his storytelling and what, what he brought to Daredevil. He took more, uh, I, I, I hate continuing to say this, but, you know, the original Daredevil that we did know uh, as we perceived him was a a second-string Spider-Man. But, again, he... Up to this point, that's what he was. And when Frank Miller took him over, he added all these elements to his backstory and mm-hmm. gave him that level of individuality and made him st- stand apart from the other heroes that were his, you know, existed in, in that same... His contemporaries. His contemporaries, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and another aspect of uh, his originality comes into play with uh, the manga sensibilities that he brought into the story. Um, specifically, something I would call attention to would be the decompression of the sequences uh like if you look at uh some of the battles the fight scenes and action sequences in in his daredevil run there's actually quite a lot of wordless sequences Mm. the the action itself is you know very dynamic it's very well choreographed action but there's a lot of wordless sequences uh, as well um you know these are sequences that you Eventually, in later in his later work, you'll you'll see a lot more of that too, Sin City and whatnot. Yeah. But um, I would also challenge somebody to find a three-page uh, wordless action sequence in a Chris Claremont comic of the same time period. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's it's interesting because I from what I remember, some of the earlier uh, issues of Daredevil there, were, and this might be an editorial thing, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some pages from what I remember where you would get a lot of the exposition, but it was mainly to be like last time on Daredevil, yeah, that sort of thing, and that didn't feel like Miller at all because, yeah. again, like given the choice, I think he he would have 
preferred to do stories where he just would let the art do the storytelling but those were the earlier issues of it where i'm sure miller and jansen were still kind of feeling their way out to what the final product of daredevil would ultimately look like well the other thing you have to keep in mind too is that the editor-in-chief at the time jim shooter he was a big proponent of recaps Mm -hmm. um so i have a feeling that a, a lot of those early page recaps in Daredevil um, exactly. were the product of, of that influence because exactly. Jim Shooter was the guy who was like, you know, any comic that somebody picks up, it could be their first comic, mm. so we don't want them feeling lost. We yeah. gotta make sure that, uh, you know, everything gets explained to them and they know what's going on so they can keep keep pace and, and you know, enjoy enjoy the comic, uh, which I don't actually think is a wrong attitude, but at the same time, yeah. I don't think that's the right way to go about telling yeah. the story because it, it, it gets pretty disjointed but i yeah. at the same time like there's a chance back he was in coming those from days, a good place back in those yeah. days it wasn't necessarily uh certain that you would be able to read the entire story you know like maybe maybe there were kids that had a heck of a hard time finding the next issue so they yeah. could only buy the comic whenever they found it you know maybe they live in some remote place where they don't have access to to comics as, as easily every single month yeah, it's interesting because I think about the comics that were coming out around this time and I think, uh, I want to say John Byrne was doing Fantastic Four around this time. A little after because this was more around the time of uh, their Uncanny X-Men run. Okay. Claremont and Byrne. Yeah, well, that's an even better example. But um, yeah, so at the time you, you have something like Uncanny X-Men by uh, Claremont and... The exposition in that compared to... Uh... Yeah, but, but the exposition in that wasn't merely relegated to recapping the it previous wasn't, issue. It wasn't, it wasn't, was, yeah. It was, it was Every like, panel was yeah. about giving a speech. Yeah, it was, it was exposition yeah. to explain everything that your eyes could already see yeah. in the artwork. And But that's my point, was just to tell just how... I don't, not groundbreaking, but how different this was from yeah. from the other advanced. works at the time. Yeah, like yeah, you could tell that Frank Miller was aiming to do something different by trusting the audience to be able to tell the story in their mind with their eyes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he didn't have to um, have Daredevil recount his backstory every time he was beaten up by yeah. a purse snatcher. There's no scene where he's like, "Ha." Huh. Luckily for me, I have these heightened powers from that time that I was hit by a chemical yeah. radioactive isotope from saving that old man. <laughs> I'll be able to jump over these barrels like nothing. <laughs> you know, because that's what we all do when we're thinking. <laughs> yeah, totally. There was some other stuff that uh, I thought was cool, too, in terms of originality. Like, one thing I noticed was as his run progressed, Miller started to rely less and less on thought balloons. Mm. Like thought balloons were definitely uh, something that were used a lot throughout this time period. Um, they're kind of they've kind of fallen out of fashion in today's comics. Yeah. Today, you're more likely to see uh, just a simple dialogue caption, boxes, yeah, a caption box yeah. for narration. Um, but Frank Miller, I don't. I mean, I'm not going to say he was the one who introduced the concept or anything because I I don't know how to prove that, but um, just reading these issues, I noticed that he started to integrate narration captions a lot more than uh, thought balloons. I mean, don't get me wrong, he still uses thought balloons sometimes, but 
as as the run progresses, I, I've just been noticing more and more yeah. uh, caption boxes. So, um, but even for first person narration, where tra- traditionally you would you would see a thought balloon, yeah, it it, it, it does make it look different. You know, it, yeah, it makes it look more. It looking reading it today, it it makes it look more modern, more contemporary than a comic that's just full yeah. of thought balloons, like a Claremont comic. Yeah, I. I tend to agree with that because when I see a comic with thought balloons now, it it's it takes you out of it. It just kind of it those little curvy bubbles. They don't. I, I guess aesthetically speaking, they don't necessarily look too good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and espe- especially if you're trying to establish a mood, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. There's I don't know if it's an association thing, but there is a part of me that subconsciously associates that with lighter fare uh you know like and i don't mean to denigrate the thought balloon but it 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 feels more at home in a place like an archie comic or something for me (laughs) you know and um if you're gonna tell like a crime noir story or something like that with which which was what frank miller was doing with uh daredevil it feels like he's trying to do something more moody, more poetic, and those those the image of those thought balloons pointing out of someone's brain while they're in the middle of pondering something, it, it yeah, it throws you off, you know? Yeah. Like it, it works it feels better just seeing the caption box. Yeah, visually there's yeah. a tonal dissonance. Yeah, yeah. couple other things I had in my notes regarding uh, the originality and I, I can't remember exactly why I, I jotted this down but um, I remember uh, issue 169 has a funny scene where Daredevil and Bullseye are fighting in a movie theater Yeah. and for some reason, for whatever reason, even though they're fighting uh, they're kind of in the background and then Frank Miller devotes his attention to these two pretentious movie critics that are watching yeah, the movie yeah, theater yeah. And they, they just kind of babble on about film theory while the movie plays and Daredevil and Bullseye have a fight in the background. I do feel like that's something that Miller does quite a bit. Uh, you see that in Dark Knight Returns where yeah. like the main crux of the action is happening, but at the same time the focus is on these side characters just having a conversation it's, about... It's comedic. Yeah, it's yeah. comedic. It, but it's just this random conversation about whatever they're having a conversation yeah. about. And from what I remember, I think he does that in Sin City too. Yeah. 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 It's probably one of his tricks that he uses in a lot of his different comics. It'd be yeah. interesting to do a, you know, a real deep study on, on that. Yeah. But, you know, just things like that, are I think, are pretty, uh, pretty fun. Because even though this comic is regarded as a story with a serious tone... And it's a major influence on the grim and gritty comics that would spring up uh, throughout the 80s and late 80s and early 90s. People seem to tend to forget or downplay the humor. Yeah. And there is plenty of humor in these comics. There's that, uh, like not only the scene I just described, but there is also that uh, one issue where Foggy Nelson, you know, he's he's like trying to investigate a case on his own. Yeah. And he starts calling himself Guts Nelson. <laughs> Do you remember that issue? Where I, I don't, but he's, that's he's, funny. He's investigating yeah. uh, criminal activities. Yeah. But he's kind of bumbling through it because he's just a regular yeah. schmo. Yeah. And throughout it all, uh, without his own knowledge, uh, Daredevil is watching his back. So like he'll walk into a bar with hardened criminals, ask a ask a really dumb question, 
everybody gets mad and they're about to and daredevil will from behind the scenes yeah, <laughs> protect he, him. He beats, <laughs> him he beats everybody up but because he's a ninja foggy doesn't even see him yeah, yeah, yeah. so at the end like foggy's like okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, you know it's just it's it's funny stuff like that and, and even uh recurring characters like turk yeah so there there is uh comedy imbued into the overall run even though it is um more well remembered as a serious type of story yeah there's there's good balance of comedic relief as well as the heaviness of it yeah and there are some other things that <laughs> uh jump out at me uh just in term yeah just like i'm i'm fumbling trying to look for the words to describe it but there is one <laughs> issue where he he essentially fights like a dominatrix <laughs> that's <laughs> Uh, as a kid, that was the first time I'd ever seen that. <laughs> or, like, as a teen or whatever, seeing that in comics, I was like, he doesn't explicitly say that that's what he is, but as you get older and as you learn things in this world, you see that and you go, huh, pretty sure that's a gimp. <laughs> Uh, Pulp Fiction taught me a lot. <laughs> you have any other comments regarding the originality of the work? No, I think I think we uh, covered it pretty well. Um, we can move on to impact if you if you'd like. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's talk about the impact. So I think it starts first of all uh, with what I mentioned earlier in the podcast, but how. Daredevil was famously on the brink of cancellation, mm. and it was regarded as a lower-tier Marvel comic. Yeah. And that was part of the reason why they let a relative newcomer like Frank Miller uh, have creative reign, because the higher-ups didn't really care about it. But Frank Miller completely turned it around to the point that it went from being a bi-monthly comic to a monthly comic, and he turned this lower-tier, second-rate Spider-Man into one of Marvel's most popular characters. Yeah. Heck, he created a supporting character, Elektra, who ended up becoming one of their most popular characters. Yeah. Someone who's still a popular character today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, but um, prior to this, Daredevil was kind of a one-note character, and... After Frank Miller, you can almost call it, you know, post-Frank Miller or something like that. Uh, we see that they've been mining uh, his stories for for the same elements over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we... there Even, okay, so following him, we, we get Chichester, who touches on a lot of the stuff... Uh, Chichester was in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I'm, I didn't mean directly following oh, okay. him, but like yeah. following him, we see someone like Chichester and, you know, he even did a story that was um, a, not necessarily a sequel, but, kind you know. Kind of like a thematic uh, spiritual successor. Yeah, there we go. A spiritual successor. Of, inverse of Born Again. Of Born Again, exactly. And then, you know, soon after that, Again, there, there, there are comics, Daredevil comics in between this, but in terms of the things that stick out, you know, when Kevin Smith and Joe Quesada come on, um, they take elements of the, uh, of the 
Frank Miller stuff and they put it into their Daredevil run. Mm-hmm. And then probably more famously after that, uh, not too long after that, uh, Bendis and Maliv. you have Bendis and Maliv. Even even the in-between, even the David Mack stuff, I, like mm-hmm. Kingpin and Bullseye are just, or and this whole chessboard of life thing between the two of them this never-ending battle of wits between the two of them it's just kind of built into the character now you know to the point where when daredevil doesn't take on on kingpin it's it's noticeable and kind of weird i guess (laughs) (laughs) um yeah yeah that's true I, i mean i would definitely say that every single daredevil run since this run lives in its shadow yeah. Right? Like, just about every significant run of Daredevil after Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen had their hands on him yeah. tries to imitate a similar gritty, noirish tone, or it goes in the completely opposite direction. Yeah. And, and meaning, by that I mean, like, a swashbuckling or lighthearted, yeah. adventure, adventurous yeah. Daredevil. Isn't that weird where you make such an impact on a character that, again, even when someone tries to do something different, it's you're still tied to it because you're trying to differentiate yourself yeah. from that main thing exactly and the thing that i the other thing i was going to mention on on a larger wider scale is um we mentioned i mentioned earlier that uh that whole grim and gritty and dark th- uh dark tone out of comics i i'm not going to say that frank miller holds the exclusive rights to that or anything like that but you can see in terms of his impact on his work moving forward progressing um that tone would affect the larger overall comics industry yeah moving forward to some point he was one of the progenitors of that style and everybody wanted to imitate yeah you get to a point where dr fate becomes like a hard, you know, a hard punk guy <laughs> with a with a weird onk tattoo on his eye. That was bad era. That was Dr. bad Fate. era of Doctor Fate, man. Um, like you, we could just sit here and list off the number of comics that tried to copy that tone, mm-hmm. uh, and it's. It, I'm not gonna say that they were all failures. There, we get some good stuff out of it. Um, was Green Arrow by Mike Grell after? Yeah, that was after. Yeah, so like that's that was a more hardened street version of Green Arrow that I I'm not gonna say that he copied Daredevil or was inspired by it, but you know, uh, it's kind of a got a comparable tone. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. It's might be their version of uh of the realistic tone being applied to a street level character. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's fun. Like at the time when those comics were coming out, mm-hmm. they were terrible. <laughs> there, were, there was a lot of bad stuff out there, but it's kind of fun now in retrospect to <laughs> pick apart something like Dr. Fate. <laughs> uh, it's fun picking apart a lot of bad comics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot of comics that have been influenced. And, and, you know, when people get influenced by a certain work, they're not, it doesn't always mean that they're going to be 
they're not going to approach that level of quality, right? Oh yeah, absolutely it, not. It, it's it's uh, one of those things where they can imitate it, but it's always going to be a pale imitation. Yes. And, and yes. Very rarely do you get someone yeah. who who imitates it and is able to do it in a way that successfully, uh, you know, captures the same spirit and mm. is still really good on its own. Like, yeah. You know the the Bendis and Malieve example, um, that and uh, Brubaker and Lark. Those would be two examples where I would point to those and be like, yeah, you can definitely see how um, heavily dependent they are on Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen's stuff. Absolutely. But both of those runs. They were more than competent when yeah. they were telling yeah. their stories. Yeah, Th- those were still excellent in and of themselves as as well. Yeah. Um, and I do think, in a large way, it mm-hmm. it depends on who's who's receiving it, right? So. <laughs> Um, there are people that were, that read Daredevil, uh, by Frank Miller and they might've walked away with the complete wrong idea of yeah, what, yeah. what the point of the story was. And Absolutely. they applied it to their, you know, they had the chance to shoot their, sh- shoot their shot, tell the story. And they were like, man, I, I just want to do something that's in the tone of that, of, of that Daredevil. And I want to tell that story. And this is my chance to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to tell, you know, a slapstick story. <laughs> if you kids don't know, slapstick was a character. I'm going to tell a grim and gritty slapstick story, <laughs> you know? And it's just, you miss the point entirely. <laughs> yeah. And that's not even to talk about a lot of the bad comics that came out from the early 90s. Like, I don't know, like death blow or something, you know? Yeah. An entire line of comics came out that... <laughs> And again, I'm not going to say that they were directly influenced by Daredevil or or Frank Miller specifically, but there was an entire line of comics that mirrored that style and that aesthetic yeah, of dark and grim and gritty. When we talk about grim and gritty comics, it's not just Frank Miller's Daredevil, but also Frank Miller's Batman yeah. and yeah. Alan Moore's uh, Batman Superman. The Killing Joke, or, yeah. Alan Moore's uh, Watchmen, yeah. you know... People tend to point to Frank Miller and Alan Moore as the as the two guys that inspired a truckload of imitators, and most of those imitators were not worth their weight. So, Certainly not. <laughs> yeah, so that's how we ended up with you know a lot of the a lot of the bad image comics of the early '90s that tried to imitate this grim and gritty tone. Young blood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stuff like that. It, it just it just ends up coming out coming across as silly. Yeah, you know? it yeah it comes to a point where they. They took the stuff that they liked about Frank Miller or mm-hmm. Alan Moore and they just, I guess they felt like they needed to turn it up a notch to, to yeah. like match it. <laughs> and, and when you do that, it's just, it's a lampoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they ended up becoming parodies. Yeah. A couple other examples of the great impact that uh, this work had. One of them that I thought of was how it established Frank Miller as a giant in the field of comics. Yeah. Because he's definitely one of the most influential, most important uh, creators um, of all time. Yeah. It, he was able to continue his career into even bigger things. And this showed how important it was to allow for creative freedom. Mm-hmm. After his initial run on Daredevil, he was able to do something groundbreaking over at DC, like Ronin, that miniseries Ronin, that was a really great uh, piece of work. 
Uh, he was also able to do things like the Dark Knight Returns. He was able to do come back to Daredevil and do uh, Born Again. Yeah. You know, Batman Year One, Sin City, Martha Washington, uh, Big Guy and Rusty, Hard Boiled, Three Hundred. Like all these, all these really notable works. Like all of those are just like classic comics. You know, like yeah. stuff that that uh, people should check out if they like comics. If they like. Uh, Frank Miller, and and he was able to, yeah, just establish himself as the kind of guy where he could, like, for for a little while there, right, like, in the 80s and 90s, he was able to just be like, I want to do this, and someone would be like, yeah, please do it. Yeah. You know? Like, without Daredevil, he would not have had the name recognition or the weight to do the things that he wanted to do. Yeah. You know, which... You know, only so many of us can dream of. Yeah. And obviously, uh, like, one of the biggest things that he ended up doing with Klaus Jansen was The Dark Knight Returns. Mm. Um, and you can really see the fruits of their collaboration, uh, you know, maximize on that project. Whereas, you know, in their early issues on Daredevil, they're still kind of, like, getting to know each other, figuring things out. And then w- once you read uh, The Dark Knight Returns, it's, like, it's a whole nother level, too, you know, yeah. in terms of, like... The, the artwork, the storytelling, the pacing, the craft of it all. It, it's just... They just continued to get better and better at what they were doing. Mm. Um, what other impacts did this thing have? Oh, I was going to also mention how uh, Elektra became so popular that Marvel just wouldn't let her die. Yeah. <laughs> well, fortunately you know, for for us, um, like Frank Miller was the one who was able to bring her back, right? Um, so like the, the last, the second to last issue in his run, he does bring her back, but there's also kind of this notion where she's not going to come back, you know, like maybe she's not technically dead. She got brought back to life through some ninja mysticism, but, but she can't ever come back into Matt Murdock's life. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, or maybe, I mean, I'd have to, uh, I should probably reread it more carefully but i think the implication was that it it might not have even been like a literal um resurrection more of like a spiritual one yeah and it wasn't until uh the 90s when chichester took over daredevil that he ended up bringing her back much to frank miller's displeasure from what i understand yeah um he did miller did do some other electra stories like he did a uh, electra lives again and he also did electra assassin yeah. those ones I don't really know. Like again, I'm not a continuity pornographer, so I'm yeah. not gonna like try to figure out where that fits into the chronology of everything. And yeah. are they real? Did that, <laughs> did that really happen? Did, did Electra really come back to life, Albert? Oh, uh, you're out. Um, no, 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 no. She did not. She was never. <laughs> she alive was never real. <laughs> she was, was not a, a real person. She was just a comic book character. She's ink on paper. <laughs> but yeah a lot of the the characters that he uh not only the characters that he created specifically Elektra but a lot of the characters that he worked on ended up becoming staples like Bullseye and Kingpin like you mentioned earlier yeah. like we're always people are who, anyone who writes a Daredevil comic is gonna have a Kingpin story yeah anyone who writes Daredevil is gonna have a Bullseye story you kinda just have to yeah and you know to go back to you know Kingpin and Bullseye like even when they're not in Daredevil comics, I think they're still recognized in the Marvel universe as just mm-hmm. 
two bad dudes, the, some of the worst dudes, really. Yeah. You know, so that's that's thanks to Frank Miller. Yeah, his know? interpretation of those two characters have... His interpretation. It's lasting. Yeah, it's the definitive interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Another funny thing that uh, I thought of was how the popularity of his run was a big influence on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, that's that's an example of how <laughs> the the style of his writing ended up bleeding out into just one of the greatest properties that we do have now. Yeah. You know. You know. A, uh, an international pop culture phenomenon. It was meant to be a parody of that of, of, of Frank Miller's yeah. style and Daredevil, but it just ended up taking on a life of its own. And yeah. now we have this entire thing just out in the world for yeah. kids to appreciate. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. That, that, I don't know. I'm not sure if that would really exist the same way it does if not for Frank Miller's Daredevil. Yeah. Like one of the things that if you read the very first issue of Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if you read issue number one of that comic where you read the, it has the origin of the turtles, you know, I'm sure people have watched the cartoon or the movies and you know the basic origin, but in the actual comic, what happens is that the, the mutagen that the turtles fall into is actually the radioactive <laughs> stuff that blinds Matt, Matt Murdock. Yeah, yeah, so like it starts yeah. off with with an old man crossing the street and a young boy pushing the guy out of the way. The yeah. truck gets into an accident and that mutagen like hits him right. Yeah, but it also some of that mutagen falls into the sewer. Yeah, and then and then that, you know that's where some other kid drops his pet turtles and they fall into the sewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Splinter and all of them walk walk around in that mutagen and yeah. that's how they, they become mutants. <laughs> I I did not know that story. That's pretty fun. Yeah. And and the foot clan, you know, yeah, they're the they're the hand. hand. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. Yeah, it is. It is. Instead of instead of the sensei being stick, he's splinter. <laughs> you know? Oh, that's great. There's all these little uh, shout-outs to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. the Frank Miller stuff in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you just got to acknowledge what kind of a big impact this yeah. comic had. You, you this know, like even this the, comic is huge. The, the TV series is yeah. heavily influenced by... The Netflix TV series is heavily influenced yeah, by... Yeah, absolutely. Run. Yeah. And even that bad Daredevil movie that they made way back. With Ben Affleck? With Ben Affleck, yeah. Uh, I yeah, mean, they made an Electra movie. Yeah, and they even made an Electra movie, exactly. Yeah. And they just took elements of Frank Miller's stuff. They did it in a bad way, and it was piss poor, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> it was still influenced by, by this Daredevil. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, yeah, like we mentioned earlier, to this day, whenever they do some new iteration of Daredevil... They it, it almost feels like it's built into it where they have to acknowledge that they have to do some sort of story that's some version of either uh, the Electra Saga or Born Again. Yeah. 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 So they're constantly retreading those. All the time. All the time. Yeah. A, a lot of creators from his con- from Miller's contemporaries to artists of today have been influenced by his work. Uh, generally speaking, yeah, and definitely specifically pointing to this run on Daredevil, uh, he he was a guy who brought a Japanese sensibility to American comics. Uh, he brought this noirish sensibility. He brought he made Will Eisner's 
Spirit. Spirit. Uh, he brought that. He made that cool again. You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, so he he's just had a big influence on like probably a couple generations of comic book creators now. So anyone whose comics you you enjoy nowadays, they whoever made those comics probably yeah. enjoyed and was influenced by Frank Miller's comics. That's impact, baby. Yep. Yeah. So for those of you who are taking that poll. Hush didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the scary thing is, is that in in another few years, people who grew up on Hush, might they're gonna start influencing stuff. Yeah, people who grew up on Hush might become professionals, and they're gonna try to channel those sensibilities into their work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you think we're getting old, Albert? Do you think that we're just not cool enough to appreciate more recent comics? No, I think there's recent comics that me and you appreciate. For sure. Like, um... Even though we don't appreciate a lot of this popular stuff that people seem to like nowadays? I think we like some of the popular stuff. I don't think we like the stuff that blows up, Mm -hmm. you know, but... Yeah. Uh... I don't know. I think think we're capable of having a healthy debate, and I, I don't think we're so stuck in our ways that... We're incapable of enjoying newer things. Um, we we definitely read more than well, not more than our fair share, but we we're willing to step outside of our comfort zone to read what's popular now. Like we've gone out of our way. We'll mm-hmm. we'll get it from the library. We'll even buy it from the quarter bins and just to give ourselves a taste of it. So we're not so close minded <laughs> that. Yeah. You know, we want our comics to be a certain way. Heck, I, I think we're more open-minded than a lot of people who won't even accept a female Thor. So, <laughs> well, come on. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> That's true, man. That's true. Thank so, you, man. Yeah. Thank you, man. That that was reassuring. You've given me the will to keep on living. Okay. Thank you. No, Thank no you. problem, man. Yeah. Do you want to move forward and uh, talk about the Frank Miller's Daredevil's ability to withstand the test of time? Yeah, yeah, let, let's talk about that a bit. Um, I mean, first of all, this run uh, still regarded as one of the essential Marvel Comics runs of any series. Yeah. I I'm mean, pretty sure we, Born Again yeah. makes it to a bunch of people's top ten lists. Yeah, we haven't really <laughs> talked... We haven't talked too much about Born Again, but Born Again is definitely still regarded as one of the high points in the entire Marvel canon. Yeah, yeah. It still holds up today as well as Frank Miller's other major corporate-owned classics, uh, Born Again. I'm talking about Born Again. Like, you can put Born Again on the same tier as something like The Dark Knight Returns or Batman Year One. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it belongs on that level. Do you... Well, uh, so do you want to do you want to go over Born Again before we go into this, or do you want to save yeah, that for? Sure, let's talk about Born Again. I mean, we haven't really spent too much time about talking about Born Again, or even like the other stuff, like the Man Without Fear miniseries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, okay. You want to summarize uh, the story of Born Again? Yeah, I'll just do a quick recap or a quick synopsis, but. Uh, essentially, Born Again is kind of the... I don't know if it's the closing uh, of Frank Miller's 
tenure, like, I don't know if it's the period on Frank Miller's uh, Daredevil run. Maybe it's the exclamation point. It's the exclamation, eh, that's fair. It's the exclamation point on his on his time with Daredevil, but... The, the fire emoji. The fire emoji. <laughs> or the thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, in short, it's uh, the culmination of the... Um, the animosity between Daredevil and the Kingpin. And in this story, what ends up happening is Karen Page, a former lover of Daredevil, uh, she's she's left his life and she's decided to go out into the world and uh, try to make it on her own. And in the brief period of time since she's exited his life, she's essentially... Ru- she tried to be an actress, but she ruined... Her, her life just went downhill. She became addicted to drugs. She ended up performing in adult movies. And, you know, she's she's just at the bottom of her life. She's at the lowest point in her life. And at the lowest point, as she's jonesing for her next fix of drugs, what she ends up doing is she goes to a dealer and... For her next hit, she basically sells away Daredevil's secret identity. And it moves up the chain to the point where Wilson Fisk, the Kingpin, gets a hold of this information. And once he knows the secret identity of Daredevil, he decides he's going to use it and just full-on ruin Matt Murdock's life Mm -hmm. for just all the years that they've been... (laughs) He's been a thorn in his side... So he just proceeds to go out there and he destroys his law firm. He blows up his home. He just ruins his all his credit. So Daredevil's just out, you know, at, at his lowest. Daredevil is just out on the streets, yep. starving and cold <laughs> and just dejected. And he's I don't just. I laughing at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. You're, you're describing all of the misery in this man's life with a lot of glee. You, you, you sound positively exuberant that I, I have, endured all the suffering. I, I have no explanation for it either, but maybe the story just brings me joy because I know what Daredevil's going to do. So it gets to a point where, you know, Daredevil just has all this stuff happening to him. He doesn't know why it's happening to him, but ultimately he he just knows that in his heart, he knows that somehow, some way, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, is behind it. Mm-hmm. And at his lowest point, he decides, I can't do anything within the confines of the law, but I'm just going to go up there. I'm going to mess this guy up. And I'm going to, you know, because that is what I can do. Mm-hmm. And he goes in there and he confronts the kingpin. Mm-hmm. And the kingpin just whoops his ass. <laughs> <laughs> you think that's funny? You think that's pretty funny, huh? Uh, Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, I laughed. <laughs> he whoop the kingpin whoops him, and then he just leaves him in a car to die. <laughs> he leaves him in a car, pushes the car into a river, and leaves Matt Murdock to die. Yeah, and um, yeah, that's that's. Do should I ruin it? Should I spoil it? Or, <laughs> or or is that a good place to leave it? <laughs> So I, I guess, with, without having to spoil too much of the story, I, w- I would just say that 
the rest of the story turns out to be Matt Murdock's journey to crawl out of the wreckage yeah, of his life. There we go. There, that's a good way to put it. And he comes back and finds a way to pull his stuff back together and to not necessarily put an end to the kingpin, but to get his win, whatever, however that looks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. the story is called Born Again, and obviously it's not the end of Matt Murdock or Daredevil yeah. because, you know, this comic took place, it was made like 30-something years ago. Yeah, and there's been Daredevil yeah. comics since yeah, then. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't think we're spoiling anything to say that Daredevil comes out on top here. Yeah. But you just, I, I would encourage anyone to, to read the story just yeah. to find out how that happens you know yeah like there are there are a lot of elements that um are brought into the story towards the end that that uh we don't we don't really need to include them in our in our summary but like it's just fun to read it on your own yeah it is yeah it is um (laughs) part of me wants them to read it and then like they turn to the last page and it's like matt murdoch won a lottery ticket he's rich again None of his problems matter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> or they get to the last page and they're like, it was all a dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Don't worry. That's not how it ends. Yeah. But I will say that um, from what I remember of the uh, earlier Frank Miller, uh, Claus Jansen run on Daredevil, there are some things that again, due to editorial edicts, might date it or might make you feel like uh, it was restricted in its storytelling, but I do feel that uh, in terms of an example of something of uh, of the run that was able to truly withstand the test of time, I do feel like Born Again is that story, Mm -hmm. because although it's a part of the regular Daredevil run, it truly is this evergreen it's evergreen and it's absolutely self uh what's the word self-contained self-contained you can just read it you can take this story read it on its own and it's just it's the perfect daredevil movie yeah you know and that's why they keep going back to it and uh they keep trying to retell the story of the kingpin ruining daredevil's life Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's a it's an essential daredevil story like even if you don't bother even if you don't bother reading the original run from the early 80s, um, at, at the very least, walk away from this podcast and pick up a copy of Born Again. Yeah, absolutely. You have to read Born Again. You have to. <laughs> we will murder your family if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> we will break into your home <laughs> and we will just eviscerate them. We're <laughs> talking about... Blood and guts to people's loved ones, and you're laughing. Oh. You seem to be enjoying a lot of uh, violence today. <laughs> what can I say? I have hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, there isn't anything in Born Again that I feel is dated. The language is it. He doesn't you know, mired in slang or anything like that. You can, mm-hmm. it really feels like you're just reading just a straightforward story. Well, not straightforward, but like it, it could have been written anytime, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's timeless. It's time. Perfect way to put it. It is a timeless story. 
and it's yeah the the artwork's beautiful it's just, there isn't anything about it that makes me feel like yeah there isn't anything about it where i'm like oh shoot they're using they're not using smartphones or something you know <laughs> <laughs> nothing as silly as that you know yeah the artwork in born again in particular is magnificent david mazzuccelli who would later on uh collaborate with frank miller to to draw batman year one like this is some seminal stuff man like this yeah. is like every single panel shows a lot of thought and intelligence and and like the 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 compositions of the layouts the characters acting and body language the the inking like the everything is just perfect you know like it, mm. you can't really find any faults with the artwork on any level like i, I would even go so far as to say that as far as the art goes, I, I even like this more than the issues that Frank Miller drew himself. Mm. I do like uh, looking at this and just the way that he draws their figures. You know, it's... He has a very realistic sense of anatomy. Yeah. Um, very great sense of place. And his, his artwork is really easy to follow. And he gives you just enough detail so that whatever isn't there, your imagination easily fills it in. Mm. But he's also great at conveying, uh, you know, action and, and power and force, like the, yeah. the gracefulness in Daredevil when he jumps off a rooftop or even a brief scene at the end. Uh, like there's a, there's a scene towards the end when things get out of uh, control because the Kingpin calls in a hired gun, uh, this super soldier called Nuke, yeah. who ends up, you know, becoming a character that marvel has been going back to in recent years like he was dead for a long time <laughs> yeah he was dead for a long time uh. but um there's also a scene in that fight where the avengers show up and even though it's just for a couple panels mazzuccelli and um and miller's writing like they really convey this tone where it's like man daredevil he operates on the street but then these avengers people like yeah. iron man and thor even captain america like these guys are from another world you know yeah like, it, it like it's almost like the two don't match up but yeah. somehow they're they the still same. exist in the same yeah. world yeah. yeah and and it's 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 kind of an amazing uh the way he like, communicates that shift. from what yeah. i remember was is it's pretty eloquent because here you have this like disaster taking place and then these these almost godlike beings show up but you don't see them you just kind of see their outlines or elements that of them that you recognize as a comics reader that this is them, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, like, even Captain America, who's, for all intents and purposes, another street-level guy, like, you just see him in outline from what I remember, you know? Just And, again, it just kind of highlights this idea that Daredevil, he's... That's a pretty great page right there. Mm -hmm. But it, yeah, it just highlights this idea that Daredevil, even though he's just a normal dude, he, he's, he's playing in a pretty big sandbox and he holds his own. Yeah, and when we talk about um, things like impact or originality, like just the contributions that 
that uh, Miller and Mazzuccelli made to the Marvel Universe in this one, like, you could just point to the character Nuke, right? Like, uh, Nuke, he's just a super soldier, kind of in the vein of Captain America, except yeah. more psychotic. Um, he could have been another just throwaway character that they just needed to put in yeah. to the story because they needed to have Daredevil fight somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And essentially, that's what he was. But what ended up happening is that Marvel... Um, or whoever ended up writing for Marvel later on appreciated the character so much that they wanted to bring him bring back. Bring him back and, and write him into the like, story. You, you, all, you see him, like, everywhere. Or yeah. not everywhere, but you see him, like, regularly now. It, yeah, exactly. Like, he was he was in Thunderbolts, and then uh, he was in Wolverine Origins. Oh, yeah. Um, he's in Captain America. Yeah. Uh, more recently, he was in Captain America. Coats. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, even on the Netflix show, uh, he was with, he oh, was yeah, in he, Jessica Jones. Yeah. He was yeah. in Ali- Jessica Jones. Yep. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing how they create these characters that are, you know, they're created to serve the specific purpose of moving the story along and, you know, to provide the emotional impact of that particular story and I don't I I'm pretty sure there was no intention to bring them back after that and then now here we are years decades later and some other writer somewhere else decided I'm gonna I'm gonna find a way to work him into my story yeah yeah even another example that I could point to would be uh the the romance between Matt Murdock and Karen Page um I mean that was obviously something that was introduced before Frank Miller's time from the from the Silver Age comics but but I feel like after this story you know like everybody up to like Kevin Smith's and Joe Quesada's run mm. they would have some sort of you know like Karen Page was a supporting cast member there's the, a callback to yeah, it yeah yeah even um yeah again the the TV series the Netflix show they had to have Karen like she's yeah. she's an essential character because of comics like this yeah yeah see so frank miller's impact it's it's going to be felt for years decades to come even if you don't realize it (laughs) yeah and and definitely um maybe even more than his original run with klaus jansen with born again i would i would feel pretty confident in saying that a lot of uh modern comic book creators have been influenced by like you can you can look at uh not only just the writing but uh Mazzuccelli's artwork and like the style that he he draws in here yeah like a, there's a lot of great artists today that have kind of a comparable uh sensibility style. Yeah, yeah and style um you can look at how a lot of I don't know if this was the f- the first one of its kind, but but uh, this is Born Again is one of those stories where it was serialized, but it reads like an original graphic novel, like a single work, mm. um, and a lot of uh, you know a lot of comics since then, like they like everybody wants to write an evergreen story like this. Everybody wants to write. Everybody a story. wishes they could everybody write. Everybody wishes they could. Everybody <laughs> yeah. wishes they could. Yeah. Certainly. Everybody wishes they could make a comic as complete and as fulfilling as this uh seven part story. Yeah. It's just one of the greatest superhero comics of all time. Yeah. 
certainly. Even the other thing that I was going to say about David Mazzuccelli that's interesting is between this and Batman Year One, like, I feel like there was a long stretch of time where you didn't really see much of anything from him. Yeah, that's because he basically left mainstream comics and just worked on his own alternative comics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maybe he even did some other artwork, but I know he... One of the other comics of his that I own, and I truly treasure it, he did an adaptation of a novel by Paul Oster called uh, City of Silence. I think it was called City of Silence. I'd have to double-check on the title, but Mm. um, that was a... That's a very avant-garde kind of comic. Mm. Uh, I've never actually read the original novel it was based on, but that comic, if you look at it, the artwork doesn't really look like a superhero artwork. Yeah. And it doesn't even look like something more recent, like Asterios Polyp, which is probably his most famous uh recent independent independent comic yeah um but like that's that's an awesome book too it is like if you look at that book you can just see like his versatility Mm -hmm. you know because that was more of a cartoony book yeah but if you compare it to what he did here in uh born again it's just it's just vastly different. Yeah. But he is nonetheless still just as unique and just as um, well done. He's he's probably someone that would be considered an artist artist, you know? Like, yeah. Just, I'm sure professional artists that work in comics now would, would point to him and be like, man, I wish I could draw as good as that. Yeah. You know? It's like between this and Batman Year One, like... He's left his mark on superhero comics. Yeah. Like, especially mainstream superhero comics. Like, isn't that crazy? He did do things, and then he just decided, I'm going to I'm gonna walk out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do my thing. <laughs> Mic drop. I'm good. Yeah. And he's forever going to be, like, remembered for that. Yeah. How crazy is that? Two of the greatest um, corporate comics, corporate quality. comics, yeah. to, to leave that sort of an impact on. It's just nuts. Yeah, totally. I also want to mention uh, a Man couple with- other Daredevil stories that Frank Miller did. Uh, he did an OGN, an original graphic novel with art by Bill Sinkovich called Love and War, which is a, it's a Daredevil story, but it, it's really more of a Kingpin story. Yeah. And it, you really delve into who the Kingpin is and, and what he cares about. Um I don't know if... I mean, I, I hesitate to, to say that he's a sympathetic character because he's also, you know, an organized crime mob and <laughs> To the degree that you can sympathize <laughs> with a cold-blooded killer. Yeah, yeah <laughs> You exactly, sympathize with him. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. That, it's, it's another book that's... It's it's not necessarily part of the run, but it's, it's worth reading. And if you buy the yeah. Frank Miller... Daredevil by Frank Miller, Companion Omnibus. You'll get that story. And it I, also has a, a miniseries from the 90s called Daredevil, The Man Without Fear, which is basically Daredevil Year One. Yeah, yeah. I will say this about uh, Love and War, though. I, yeah. I remember hearing from... I was listening to... I think it was the Kevin Smith podcast, and they mentioned it, and it got me interested in... Uh, pretty interested in it. So I gave it a read, and it's something that might be over my head it's it's it it, i might even go as far as to say it requires multiple readings before i like fully get what's going on 
is it avant-garde? A little bit. Okay. okay. I mean, Bill Sinkovitz's uh, artwork is like gorgeous. Yeah. But it's not always easy to tell what exactly I'm looking at. Uh huh. So, um, yeah, it's it's something that demands attention if you're gonna read it. I will say that much. Yeah, I can see that. I can, that's understandable. That's understandable. Yeah. I do like uh, Daredevil: The Man Without Fear as a as a year one type story. It's a. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the best. It doesn't rank as high as the other stuff in Miller's run. Mm. Uh, but this is it's something that's worth reading as well. Um, yeah. I, I from my understanding, he actually, the story was adapted from a rejected movie screenplay. Oh. So I guess he just adapted his story. To fit into Did he write the screenplay? Or Yeah, I think I don't know if it was a full screenplay or, or just a treatment yeah. or, or something like that. But I think it was supposed to be uh like if they were to ever make a Daredevil movie, yeah. Um it would have been this type of story. Or I mean at at the time. You know, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the early nineties. But uh you know, it it covers everything from his origin, you know, from Matt Murdock being a kid, what he was like when he was a kid, his his famous dad battling Jack Murdoch, who was a, a boxer um like his whole origin story about getting hit by the the radioactive gunk yeah learning how to be a ninja from stick <laughs> going to college and meeting electra his first time out fighting crime his first time out uh you know doing the vigilante thing and and uh avenging his father's murder uh yeah and basically becoming daredevil like it's it's a cool story pretty pretty breezy read and yeah i i personally think this is one of the top three comics i've ever read from john romita jr nice yeah. nice nice i'm not personally a big fan of john romita jr's artwork but in in this miniseries he's inked by al williamson mm. who is a master yeah and i think because of that it makes his artwork look so good yeah like, i actually think some of these pages are are gorgeous with the with the hatching and, and inking, um, and as far as as far as uh, John Romita Jr.'s other works that I really like, I'd probably say I, I like his uh, his Wolverine uh, Enemy of the State that Mark Miller oh okay, wrote. and he did this one shot uh, Batman Punisher crossover that Chuck oh Dixon I remember wrote. that yeah that yeah, one yeah. had cool art too okay nice. yeah like like these three are probably my favorite works from him not mm. too big onto him otherwise. I liked his Eternals. His Eternals was good too. That'd yeah. probably be a uh, top four. Yeah. yeah, the Eternals by him and Neil Gaiman. Um, he did some cool stuff with the Celestials in that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Actually, maybe that would be my top three. I'd have mm. to. Th- I'd have to think about my John Romita Jr. power ranking. Which <laughs> it's not really something I think about too often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's he's had had a pretty long career. He he's he does a lot, and yeah. he's still working. Yeah, dude so, is prolific, man. Yeah, respect totally, to totally. Him, respect to him. Mm. Do you have any other thoughts um, regarding its abil- uh, the ability of uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil to withstand the tend- test of time? Um, it is something that I can constantly see myself reading and rereading. Absolutely. Uh, I'll, I'll go, I'll even be specific and, and point to, uh, the final issue of his original run, issue 191, which is, a basically a one-off story called Roulette. Mm. This is one of my 
all-time favorite single issues of any comic. Nice. And it's, it's something that <clears throat> I'll <clears throat> I reread on a regular basis and just flip through all the time. This one's interesting because it doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the overall story arc that he was writing when he was uh, doing his run. And and uh, the other notable thing is that Klaus Janssen isn't working on this issue. It's it's written and drawn by Frank Miller. Mm. The inker is actually Terry Austin, who was known for being John Byrne's inker on Uncanny X-Men. And also Stone Cold Steve Austin's cousin. Oh, that's a cool factoid, man. <laughs> I did not know that. But uh, yeah, thank you for dropping that knowledge. What's just so for those of you listening, he is. I don't know if he is Stone Cold Steve Austin's cousin. I just, I'm just having fun with it. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> the other the other notable member of the creative team. Uh, I mean, no disrespect to Joe Rosen, the letterer, but the colorist of this issue was uh, Lynn Varley. Okay. You know who's who colored a lot of Frank Miller's other works, like The Dark Knight Returns and. 300 mm. i think they were married at some point too oh yeah but uh anyway let me uh just summarize this this comic and and why i love it so much so it, it's a story that takes place at the end of the the run at this point uh bullseye has he's basically uh not a vegetable but he's he's bedridden because after a battle with uh daredevil he's basically been paralyzed and he's conscious, but all he he's can trapped do is, in his own body. Yeah, he's he's trapped <clears throat> in his own body. His his mind is imprisoned in a body that can't move. So he's just in bed. And Daredevil has just been through all this other stuff, um, all these other adventures, and he's kind of at a breaking point. So he's at the hospital where Bullseye is, and he has a revolver, and he's playing Russian roulette with Bullseye, who can't move. So Daredevil's the one that's pulling the trigger. And the issue starts with him ruminating about how much he hates uh, Bullseye. And then you kind of see like a flashback story to like see what what happened to Matt Murdock to, to make him uh, get to this point. And what you see is that Matt Murdock in his uh, day job as an attorney, he's, he's working with a, a client who has a, who's this father who has a young son and i mean long story short this father is involved in some bad stuff and the son witnesses daredevil beating up his dad and this young boy has always idolized daredevil so the fact that he saw daredevil his hero beat up his dad makes him think oh my dad is a really bad person that must mean i'm a bad person too and Mm. he just like falls into this malaise i suppose and and daredevil you know he feels he feels overburdened by um, the heaviness of the situation, the fact that he's trapped in this cycle of violence where even when he tries to do something good, he ends up having to resort to to violence and essentially the same methods of methods that evil people use to, you know, prove their point, you know, this kind of might makes right sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So now he's just thinking about what it is to be trapped in this cycle, and and he's he's getting tired of it all. He reminisces to, to. He reminisces about what it would take to get out of it, and I guess the only solution he really has is, to end things, you know. And, and like he he goes back to Bullseye, and <clears throat> I just want to read, 
these last couple pages because it's like some of the, my favorite uh, Frank Miller writing ever. So he, he's throughout the course of the story, he's been telling Bullseye what's what's happening, um, or at least telling us what's happening. And while he's been doing that, he's been pulling the trigger, and each time it's it's been it's clicked empty, and now he's on the final chamber. So you know Russian roulette the the revolver's got six bullets and now it's on the sixth one and implying that the bullet the next time he pulls the trigger he's gonna you know kill the dude yeah. it's bullseye's turn so he's got the gun pointed at bullseye's face bullseye's just lying there helpless he's awake and alert but he just can't do anything and this is uh, matt murdoch's he's wearing his daredevil costume but this is his uh, internal narration and I guess that's what it all comes down to, Bullseye. When I fight you and beat you and know deep in my heart that I'm right in what I do. When I hate you and your kind so fiercely I could cry. When I can see that you are black and evil and have no right to live. When, at last, at long last, I've got you set squarely in my sights and I smell your fear and it is sweet to smell. When it comes to that one final, fatal act of ending you, then he fires the gun, and it's empty, and he says, my gun has no bullets. Guess we're stuck with each other, Bullseye. <laughs> and that's how the story ends. Yeah. That's how his run ends. And I always thought that was one of the most powerful things I've ever read in a superhero comic. Mm. It's just a, like a masterful sequence of of writing and art. I'll, I should put up some pictures of this yeah. on, on the Instagram. It's it's chilling stuff. Yeah. 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 It, it's like really well done, emotionally impactful material, man. I, I love it. So that's one of the things that I can always read and reread. Here, here's, here's the thing that I had written down in my notes because I think we uh, had brought it up uh, a week or two ago and we were just talking about it. Mm. Uh, but I saw this uh, post, uh, I think it was from uh, someone's, it was from the, the Claremont Runs Twitter feed and I guess he did some statistical analysis about the comics from the Claremont Uncanny X-Men era that uh, how, how the Uncanny X-Men by Claremont had a lot more issues that passed the Bechdel test. No, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but none of the comics in uh, none of the issues in Miller's run passed the test. Yeah. So, what do you think of that? Do you th do you think that matters at all in terms of how this comic withstands the test of time? Mm, at the time that we were discussing it, well, uh, explain what the Bechdel test is before I give the answer, just so. Oh, yeah. Our listeners know what, what exactly yeah, we're talking so, about. Yeah, so the Bechdel test is, is uh, something that people like to apply to, I guess, any kind of story in any medium. Like, yeah. I think it started off with movies, but it works for, for books and comics and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's a test to see if... To pass the test, basically the story has to have at least one scene where two female characters have a conversation or interact with each other without referring or referencing uh, the male protagonist. Yeah, so uh, as far as my understanding goes, the idea behind it is um, are the women characters more than one-dimensional characters that are just meant there to be supporting 
uh, whatever the male, like, just as props for whatever the male character's um, yeah, I guess so. goals are or whatever. Um, and at the time, and uh, in the, over the course of our discussion, uh, what I basically said was, I understand the point of that test, and I actually, I, I would even go as far as to say that I see some value in it. Yeah. I don't think that that necessarily in and it of itself is something that determines what a good comic is because I think you can... I think it's... To come up with an arbitrary t test like that is pretty pointless um, because it removes your ability to have a discussion about the artistic merit of, of something by just assigning... Um, an arbitrary score to to it to determine whether it meets a certain goal, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I don't, I don't see any value in, I don't see any value in the test in, uh, determining something's artistic value. But mm -hmm. but I do see like from. From a storytelling perspective, like I, if if someone comes to me and asks me, like, do I understand? Um, what do I think of stories where you know um, all the female protagonists are kind of one dimensional and all they ever do is talk about the men in their lives? Like, I get that. Like, I like if we were to reverse the um, the scenario, I like I wouldn't want a story where all the men ever do is talk about you know, the women in their lives or, you know, um, whatever. But that being said, um, for Daredevil by Frank Miller, the, the real test is what was the writer trying to do? What was he trying to achieve? Which was he wanted to tell a crime story. He wanted to tell a good Daredevil story. And did they do that? I would say they did. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen and uh, Mazzuccelli, they, they achieved that goal. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the only test that I need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, we can have a discussion about the Bechdel test. That's that's fine. And I, I would even say moving forward, like I, I would even say I would want to see stories that live up to the intentions of something like the Bechdel test but I don't think that every story needs to live up to that or needs to pass that test yeah you know yeah. Um, it, it would be kind of kind of forced if you yeah. try to structure every story you wrote just so you yeah. could you know meet that specific requirement yeah so like do I want to see a good story where you know you have two women protagonists that aren't solely based on the male uh, presences in their lives. Yeah, I'd want to see that. But I don't think that excludes another kind of story where, you know, you do have two women who are talking about their romances or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, as long as it's good, that's that's what I care about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I definitely fully agree with that. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, I want to pick your brain a little bit to see if you think the fact that it doesn't pass the Bechdel test uh, makes it seem more dated or if that hurts its ability to withstand the test of time or do you, do you think solely based on the quality of the work that's that's all that really matters I would have to say that solely based on the quality of the work that's what really matters um, yeah the, like 
again, that, that test, like, I, I think its aspirations are, I'd even go as far as to say I, those are noble aspirations. I'm fine with that. Uh, and if they can tell a great story that lives up to, to its goals, fine. But I, I don't, it's not something that I would demand all my stories require. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. just, it, it's like you said earlier, it, if you go to that extra effort and energy to tell that story, to meet the parameters of that test, it just feels forced. And mm-hmm. I think that's more detrimental to the story yeah. than helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. Any other thoughts on whether on how it withstands the test of time or just I guess anything in general if we just if you're ready to wrap things up? Yeah, uh I don't know. I think we've said what we've needed to say about it. I'm pretty satisfied with uh our discussion on the topic. Uh I think it's it deserves to be in the top three of uh, greatest Marvels of all time. Like I, I, I highly recommend that our listeners take the time to go and read it, and um, I highly recommend it. Yeah, totally. And despite despite how many times people crib and imitate Frank Miller's style, you know this this dude is a guy who influenced the couple generations of comics people and i think there might be if you're just if people come into comics nowadays it's like they might know the the people who are influenced by by the work but they might not actually know the original exactly you know? and, and that's why hush is able to be heated yeah. in, a, in a in a fan bowl <laughs> yeah true that Man, that's rough. <laughs> For those of you listening, know where you're, know your comics history, yeah. please. Yeah. But you know, this, despite that, his stuff just holds up in and of itself, man. Yeah. Um. And, and funny thing is, is when I was thinking about all the, all the second-rate imitators of of his work, it it did make me think of um how, a lot of the stuff that people in general tend to enjoy you know there's always like the people that made the stuff that people like they were always like everybody's influenced by something yeah and, of course and i think with frank miller you could definitely point to how he had a really big influence on comics especially uh mainstream american comics because like who hasn't read his stuff you know everybody like at the very least, if you read superhero comics, you're gonna have yeah. most likely have read Batman: The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. Um, and you've probably read Batman Year One. You've probably read yeah. some sort of some Daredevil stuff, or even Sin City. I mean, the interesting thing is, I feel like whenever you mention Frank Miller, the thing that people automatically go to is Dark Knight Returns. Yeah. yeah. And I have nothing against it. It's a great book. Yeah. But um, you know. Daredevil by his Daredevil stuff definitely deserves some love too. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, that's why it's here. That's why we're we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. I was also thinking about how there are so many people that uh, like, again, you know, just people that try to copy his style, or whether it's just his style in general, or how every Daredevil run since then has been in the shadow of this run. Yeah. 
it's like kind of amazing how um you can't really escape it you know like yeah there, there's like it's been like 30 like almost 40 basically about 40 years since this run came out yeah. and even today you still see runs that are influenced by it people that yeah. are imitating it um that i think that's one thing that like, just ref when I was reflecting on it, it surprised me, you know? Yeah. There's, like, a lot of a lot of imitation out there, and, you know, not every imitator is bad. Certainly mm. some are bad. Oh, yeah. Actually, a lot are bad, but <laughs> some are great, too. Yeah. Some are great. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely true. It's... It'd be interesting to see, like, what Daredevil looks like 20 or 30 years from now from from now yeah. like to see if if Frank Miller's influence I like I I'm hard pressed to say that there's going to be some version of him that deviates from this version of Daredevil yeah because like I can't really picture anything else like the closest thing that I can think of is Mark Wade's Daredevil run but again it's like you said even when someone tries to do something different from um the crime crime noirish version of daredevil it, it it's still influenced by it by the very nature of the fact that it's moving it's trying to be the opposite of it yeah, yeah. you know so like yeah. how do you get around that and uh yeah like part of me is interested to see if somewhere down the road someone introduces something so groundbreaking and so new to daredevil that it there's like a paradigm shift <laughs> in what daredevil is like i'm not saying that i necessarily want to see that but like if they can do it that's impressive yeah I, like I it would know what, where to begin with that yeah. like, what could somebody think of that would be so different that it becomes the new definitive version yeah yeah like that's it's kind of a mind-blowing thought <laughs> all right they could uh they could make daredevil a woman uh, they could. I don't know if that in and of itself is uh, what you would call a paradigm shift or whatever, but... Um. You know, f f uh, another book that kind of came out around the same era that we talked about earlier in a previous episode was Walter Simonson's Thor, right? And, and we talked about how that was a, the definitive version of Thor, but now that Jason Aaron's finished his run, there's... I get the feeling that you know, like if somebody said Jason Aaron's Thor is the definitive Thor, yeah, I would not argue that, man. Yeah, I would not argue that because because uh, his run was excellent stuff. It like I, maybe the only reason why that wasn't on our list is because it, you know it was it's it was still going it was on still at going the time on when we were making the list, yeah. and it's it's almost like it's too new, right? It's like yeah. too recent. Like we there there hasn't even been like a year to let it breathe on its yeah. own because um, it just ended a, a couple months ago. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm not saying that I regret having Walt Simonson's Thor yeah. on our list. But I don't. But, yes, yeah. no no regrets whatsoever because, yeah. to me, that that's still awesome. But I'm just saying that um, it just goes to show that even as time progresses, some there could be someone out there, man, someone... Some talented, clever cat out there that yeah. we don't even know. There's about. a kid out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and like with with Thor, man. Like I knew when 
Aaron Jason Aaron's Thor was coming out that it was some awesome stuff. But yeah. now that I finally had a chance to you know see it all, it, there there's there's no way that I can say that that's anything less than number two on the list. You know, yeah. like, or number two in terms of like all time Thor stories like yeah. that. That and Walter Simonson's Thor, those are like the definitive Thor comics. Yeah, and and maybe the only reason why we can say that. Walter Simonson's Thor is, is on the Marvel Top 25 list is because it's demonstrated, you know, like a couple dec- several we decades. We have the power of hindsight, of hindsight. to yeah. look at it and yeah. to analyze it and to break it down. So it, it has the power of time on its side. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe someday uh, we'll be looking at someone's run on Daredevil and be like, yeah. oh, that was, that was easily on the same level as Frank Miller, you know? Yeah. Like even, even now, sometimes I, when I think about like, Bendis's and Malieve's run. Yeah, I still think those. That's an awesome run. Like it's a very good run. Like if, if that's not on the same level as the Frank Miller run. Yeah. Like it, it's not very far down, you know. Like, oh yeah. Like Certainly the gap. Not. The gap is. Yeah. The gap is not wide at all. Like I, I know we made this list and we stuck to it, but there are times where I think about that Daredevil and it's. It's tempting to like squeak it onto that list. Yeah. It's definitely an honorable yeah. mention. It's a great Daredevil run. Yeah. 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 Maybe one of these days we'll just have to do an episode where we just ex- talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I'd be more than happy to. It's something that, um, I have high praise for, and it's something that I recommend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So, uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, no. Can, I'm in a good. Can I get place. a Shankadanka? Shanka Donka Shashanka Dadanka Shanka Dadanka Sorry folks, I'm gonna have to end the recording because uh, Albert's having a seizure right now. Uh, take care of yourselves and we'll see you next time. Hopefully the gap between this and our next episode won't be as long. Yes, yes. We'll try to be more consistent. <laughs> But we're still alive. We're still alive. We're still alive. We ain't dead yet. Yes.